Hello and welcome to INV Unfiltered, the podcast on what's new and intriguing in fintech and beyond. Uh, this podcast comes from INV Fintech, which is the global fintech accelerator run in partnership with Fiserv, the global banking technology company, and several banks, including U.S. Bank. I'm JJ Hornblass, uh, your host and the principal of INV Fintech, and uh, want to encourage you to visit invfintech.com to learn more about the accelerator. As always, episodes of INV Unfiltered will be po- will be posted at uh, invunfiltered.com as well as on SoundCloud, and you can get it on iTunes as well. I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email me at hornblast at invglobal.co. Our goal here at INV Unfiltered is to welcome enlightened and thought-provoking guests from across the tech and financial world to talk about key fintech issues and opportunities, and we've got a great guest with us today, Ben Savage, Managing Director of Clock Tower Technology Ventures. Ben is the uh, co-founder of Clock Tower as well as Managing Director of Dropney Capital at Drobny, Ben spearheads new business initiatives across the firm and is responsible for private market activities, including leadership of Clock Tower, Clock Tower's investments. He was previously director, uh, investment associate program for Bridgewater Associates, and he ha- began his career as a venture capitalist and private equity investor at Wasserstein Perella. And he was also a co-founder of Artivest and Waterfall Mobile. It's a great pl- privilege to have Ben with us. Ben, welcome. Thanks, JJ. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I wanted to just uh, kick it off, if possible, with uh, you telling us a little bit about the firm and uh, giving us that background before we get into it. Sure. Happy to. Uh, Clock Tower Ventures is the fintech venture capital arm of Drobny Capital. Um, we specialize in um, investing in financial services technology companies um, across really all stages of their development from kind of the earliest seeds of life for a startup, you know, a, a founder and a PowerPoint deck, um, all the way up to, you know, businesses generating significant revenue and, and even occasionally profits. Um, which which sort of a, a funny word in the venture business today, uh, across all segments of financial services very broadly defined, everything from lending to personal finance to crowdfunding, uh, insurance, um, and capital markets technology, payments, anything, anything that you could think of as FinTech we would take a look at. Um, as the, the venture arm of Drobny Capital, we bring to bear a set of relationships from um, our broader platform at Drobny, which is very focused on the hedge fund ecosystem. Drobny Capital uh, works with globally significant institutional investors to help them invest better across their entire portfolios by uh, really making a very distinctive set of investments in, in hedge funds with a particular focus on global macro hedge funds, where we try to, through uh, a very carefully curated set of relationships, generate information flow 
and ideas that help our clients, who are some of the largest and most sophisticated investors in the world, um, have a better handle on what's happening in markets broadly and, and, how they, and figure out ways to apply that across their overall portfolio. So we think of ourselves as um, a venture firm with, with some capital market DNA um, and like to think that, that we bring a slightly different perspective to the venture marketplace by really having you know, one foot firmly in kind of a global, mar global macro uh, uh, perspective um, which you know, has some interesting consequences when you're looking in particular at financial services, technology, companies. Um, you know, in the same way that we think to be you know, a great life sciences investor, you really need to understand life sciences. We think to be a great financial services investor, you really need to understand financial services. And, and one of the best ways we think to do that is um, having really spent a lot of time in, in the capital markets and as, a, as an asset manager with a global macro lens. So that's kind of us overall and um, how we think about Clock Tower Ventures. And just to follow up on that, Ben, I mean, just as a general principle, is there a, you know, can you synopsize kind of the broader thesis around Clock Tower? How, what is kind of the bottom line of that global macro perspective uh, as it relates to um, investing uh, by Clock Tower? Yeah, I think we felt that um, over the years at Drobny Capital, we've cultivated a set of relationships with some of the most dynamic and engaging investment minds in the world. Um, one of the things that's sort of fun about global macro investing is that it really encompasses everything from you know, the relative performance of industries and sectors to um, currency dynamics between countries to you know, real and nominal interest rate yield curves um, within a given country and the supply and demand for credit. Uh, and then, of course, you know, um, monetary and fiscal policy as well as real economic variables like, like growth um, and uh, inflation across different countries. And so you know, when you apply all of those things to the startup landscape, at first blush you might go, well, does it really matter? what's happening you know, um, uh, with European interest rate curves to the performance of you know, a consumer unsecured lending business in, in the U.S. Um, or, or even more abstractly like a, a payments business here. And I think what we've found is that the, the insight that, and the relationships that we're able to bring to bear uh, on behalf of our, of our portfolio companies are just a little bit different from what other VCs are able to deliver. Um, you know, and in today's world, capital is really a commodity. And so what matters for being a good investor is can you help your portfolio companies with something more than just money? So we'd like to think that in all these circumstances, what, we, what we're able to do is find one or two nuggets of insight or one or two introductions or relationships that we can help our companies with that are just outside the Venn diagram of what other VCs are typically able to bring to the table. Um, and it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. It's simply that the more folks you have kind of in the boat rowing um, and the more people you can bring to bear to help you solve a problem, to triangulate on different perspectives, uh, the, better off, the better off you can be. And so in the examples I, I sort of framed, you know, having that point of view about what's happening in Europe does actually connect to the, to the U.S. payment system because we live in an increasingly connected world both in terms of capital flows and, and actually just sort of 
raw movements of money, but also regulatory flows, growth dynamics, um, and even consumer behavior. So we have found so far, although it's relatively early, we launched our fund you know, two and a half years ago, um, that we've, we've been very pleased with how, at least we think, and I think if you were to talk to our founders, they would agree, which is sort of the ultimate test of this, that this macro-informed perspective has allowed us to, to give a, a slightly different take on strategic questions, on fundraising questions, even on talent-related questions, interestingly enough, to some of our founders. Uh, and that's really the, the idea behind the fund. Let's talk about one of those macro questions, which is the activity on the fintech venture capital scene, which where dollars uh, seem to be falling or certainly not not growing significantly. There was a drop um, in one queue. Uh, it, it would appear that, that that trend is is kind of continuing through 2017. So, what are you know, what's your take? Why do you think that that's happening? What's the macro answer to, the, to that question? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's probably two answers here. I think from a macro point of view, we think that um, venture capital funding in aggregate is going to continue to be pretty significant. Um, you know, there, there has been a little bit of a downshift relative to sort of the second half of 2015 um, and a little bit of the first half of 2016 where you really saw, you know, kind of all-time record numbers in some sense in the venture capital business. But we spend a lot of time talking to large institutional allocators, and I think what's very clear is that um, almost all of these folks are increasing rather than decreasing their allocation to uh, venture capital as an asset class. And venture capital as an asset class is not actually that large. It's something like $120 billion globally per year. About half of that is in the United States. Um, and that's sort of at the high end of, of the range. Um, that's really actually not that much money in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, the, the, the market capitalization of um, you know, the, the U.S. stock market is, is tens of trillions of dollars. So venture, and that doesn't even count sort of private funds and private equity and other things that just dwarf the venture market. So it actually doesn't take a whole lot of shift in the portfolio of end institutions to create a pretty significant inflow into the venture business. And to give you a feel for it, you know, if you imagine a $200, million, $200 billion pension plan or, or sovereign wealth fund, um, if they were to take their venture allocation from where it might typically be, which would be 1% or 2%, to something like 5%, which feels like not a crazy number, um, you're, you're talking right there about you know, a, a flow um, that can be you know, 5 or $6 billion in, of net inflows into venture capital as an asset class. Now, that flow doesn't happen all at once. It happens over a four- or five-year period as this institution makes commitments and then those commitments are drawn down. But if you imagine a $60 billion annual, uh, annual asset class and suddenly you, know, you add from just one institution you know, one or two billion dollars a year to that, it doesn't, if you add 10 institutions doing this kind of shift, um, which we think we're seeing, suddenly you're adding five to 10 billion dollars a year 
of inflows to a $60 billion asset class, you just increase the amount of money flowing into venture capital by 10% per year. Uh, with a relatively small number of institutions making this shift. Uh, and we think that's going to continue to happen over the next several years. So, so one thing you ask from a macro perspective, you know, we try to think a lot about the movement of capital. Uh, it seems like venture as an asset class is going to continue to see inflows. FinTech specifically, I think the slowdown has been idiosyncratic. Um, and that uh, a lot of what you've seen this year is kind of a reaction still to the damage from uh, the lending club disclosures from last year uh, and a related lessening overall of interest specifically in lending platforms within FinTech venture capital. And I think there's two reasons for that. The first is um, the venture industry, as best we can tell, probably underestimated the capital intensity of these businesses. You know, the narrative of Lending Club, which is sort of the hero company among um, non-Chinese uh, online lending businesses, was that, hey, this is a balance sheet light business. It's not going to be nearly as capital intensive as traditional financial institutions, um, and therefore it makes for a great venture capital category. But it's turned out that most of the, the new online lending businesses have actually been incredibly hungry uh, consumers of capital in order to get to scale where the economic models start to make sense, both in terms of balance sheet capital but also working capital for those platforms. And this is just, this is not actually a particularly attractive thing for venture as it turns out, especially if the exit market um, isn't going to be there. And, and the market has pretty significantly re-rated you know, the handful of public uh, online lenders. Um, so, you know, I think what's happened with FinTech specifically is that there's been a bit of a slowdown based on um, kind of an ongoing hangover associated with online lending. But we think that those numbers will, uh, from, from here, do nothing but grow. And that, you know, five years from now, we believe, you know, FinTech will very clearly have established itself as kind of the third largest category of venture capital spending behind you know, information technology broadly defined in life sciences, uh, and that this is sort of the secular trend that, that matters more than kind of what's just happened over the past, you know, six to 12 months, where for, for a very long period of time relative to, you know, global market cap and global GDP share, financial services has had a, a significantly disproportionate underweight of venture capital dollars. Uh, and that that we think will will revert over the next you know five to ten years. What might prevent that from happening? What do you think are the potential hurdles to that to achieving that five year uh, potential? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think there, there's there's a couple things that could could cause it to happen. You know, so the first um, and sort of the easiest one is is regulatory burden. Um, most financial services companies confront regulators uh, in one way or another um, in the form of e either existing rules and regulations that just essentially create barriers to entry to various markets, um, or in the form of um, an established kind of bureaucracy or uh, regulatory regime 
that is trying hard to adapt to technology-driven changes in the way people actually want to consume financial services, uh, as well as the types of financial services that they're able to consume, uh, and the way things have traditionally worked. And so regulators are sometimes just running behind, behind the ball, and that creates a lot of uncertainty for financial services startups. Um, and so depending on how those dynamics play out, and so far they've actually largely played out in a way that I think has been hugely beneficial to the FinTech community, and I think you have to give regulators a tremendous amount of credit for the way that they've by and large adapted, um, certainly in the U.S. And, and in the United Kingdom are both pretty good examples of where the regulators have actually been relatively forward-looking. Uh, but if the winds were to change, that would be one way that I think you'd see uh, some real, real challenges. Um, a slightly different way in which regulations can have an impact on the market is that if you talk about online lending, which is, of course, just one part of the FinTech ecosystem, um, one of the reasons that, that new lenders have been very successful over the past five years is that following the financial crisis, you know, the regulators put a whole lot of restrictions on the big banks. And so that created opportunities in the market for areas where banks were, for a variety of reasons, um, less interested or in some cases just unable to make loans. If those regulations were to continue to loosen as the trend has been, certainly under the new administration, um, you, you might see the banks actually become tougher competitors with fintech startups. Uh, and so that's sort of a, a second way in which regulation could affect it. But outside of regulation, the other thing that will, I think, matter to the long-run success of fintech venture capital is simply um, will the public markets be willing to put premium values on uh, fintech startups and deliver great returns to the VCs who've invested early. So far there haven't been a ton of great exits in fintech. There have been some pretty good increased valuations, but it's a, it's a very short list of really strong exits. Um, my belief is that you will see more and more of these over the next couple of years, and I think there are going to be a couple prominent fintech companies that will get public uh, in 2018, which will kind of keep, keep proving to allocators that there's money to actually not just be made in illiquid markups, but to be made in harvested, realized returns in fintech. Um, and I also think that perhaps more importantly, what you're really going to see in 2018 is uh, a tremendous amount of M&A activity across the financial services landscape where um, by contrast actually to the technology markets where there's kind of six companies that have, have just dominated technology market cap, in financial services it's much more diffuse. And instead of having a very steep power law distribution of, of market capitalization where there's really a, a smaller number of large companies that can be big acquirers, you actually have a whole lot of 10, 20, and $30 billion market cap financial services firms that basically all need to buy technology startups as a means of outsourcing R&D. And so I think you're going to see a, a really strong exit flow in FinTech over the next few years um, from those buyers. Uh, but if you don't, that I think also would, would clearly put a crimp in it as you know, all of the different folks who are raising funds now to do FinTech, when they go out for their second fund, um, you know, in two or three years, it will be much, much tougher to raise capital. I'm surprised that you're, you're expecting such um, active M&A in financial services next year. Um, 
help me understand why why you're seeing that. I mean, so far this year, at least on the fintech side, M&A has not been great. Uh, we haven't seen great numbers. It's really been on the downslope. Um, and then if I can add another follow-up question to your points about kind of uh, hurdles to that five-year goal, uh, an, why don't you see it more um, uh, vary th- those hurdles varying based on geography? Uh, I think that you know the global fintech market is not all equal. You've got places uh, where there's still tremendous opportunity to scale up. Uh, China is a great example. Um, whereas here in the U.S., it's difficult to get. Um, that kind of quick scale that a startup needs to achieve greater valuation. I know those are two very different questions, but um, they, you know, perhaps you can you can attack them one at a time. Yeah, sure. So let's do them in, in maybe reverse order. So I think your geography question is, is a fair point, and I was probably talking largely about um, you know advanced industrialized countries, uh, more Western nations, in, in sort of painting that picture of the fintech venture scene. Um, China is, is sort of um, a discrete category within fintech where um, I agree in, in that market it seems like there continues to just be a tremendous amount of opportunity. You've seen some very, very large uh, platforms get formed that are fintech, um, you know, like like Ant and, and others, um, we are we are not experts in China, and so we don't we don't we don't pretend to have a particularly good handle on what's going on there. Um, other than I think you, you do make a good point that if you have a market where there's a, a generally speaking less developed, um, less mature, I should say, financial services ecosystem, it's certainly easier for startups to get big fast because they're not stealing share and stealing customers from incumbents. And broadly speaking in China, but in particular in other emerging markets, you do see a lot of those opportunities. And so there are also a host of companies that have emerged um, in, in less developed nations where you, know, you get to sort of see very large outcomes fairly quickly from the startup community. Uh, and that, that probably I think the, the barriers I talked about are less, are less problematic in those geographies. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's only so much capital, so much venture capital that you can push into you know, some of these markets like Brazil or India relative to the amount that you can push into you know, um, the U.S. and, and Europe um, and even Japan. And then China's a little bit of an, of an exception to that sort of thing. So I think I, think I interpreted your question as, you know, are there, are there different hurdles in different geographies? And I would probably agree that the barriers in aggregate are lower to their, to their being continued uh, success of fintech venture in, in non-Western markets. Uh, and there's probably more challenges in Western markets, but it's also the case that just the value of financial services is significantly larger in Western markets than it is in emerging markets. Again, China being a bit of an exception. Um, on, the, on the M&A question, you know, I really think this is just kind of the, the simple point that, hey, it, it, takes com- it takes big companies time to get comfortable in a marketplace before they can buy. 
Uh, and there have not been until the past 24 months a ton of incumbent financial institutions that were forward-looking enough to build that kind of comfort level. And so, you know, there's, there's a relatively small number of exceptions in sort of Northwestern Mutual Life and BlackRock to some extent, uh, and, and, and increasingly Goldman, which is perhaps a slightly more nimble um, financial services firm than, than you know, many, many banks, um, that, that had a good enough footprint in FinTech to be in a position where they could go be acquirers. And what you've seen over the past 18 to 24 months is that virtually every financial institution um, in the world has set up some kind of connectivity to the FinTech ecosystem. Um, all of the big incumbent you know, banks uh, have set up incubators, accelerators, or built relationships with incubators or accelerators. They've set up innovation labs. They've built uh, innovation teams inside the banks that are sort of charged with providing connectivity to the FinTech landscape. I mean, if, if you're a FinTech startup sort of today, it, it's kind of never been easier to get existing financial institutions as a customer. Um, and there's no better example Although of Although it's still that. hard, Ben. It's still hard. It, it's still very hard. It's still very hard. But they're really trying. I mean, they are genuinely making an effort. Now, they still happen to be very slow-moving institutions. But they at least, you know, opened the door so that you can now get in the sort of two-hour line to actually get to meet with whoever, you know, whatever it is, to go on the ride. Um, and, and the best example of this is, is what you've seen in insurance, where essentially, to the best we can tell, you know, the CEO of every insurance company in the world looked at somebody at some point in the past 18 months and said, okay, it's your job to go figure out the Internet. Um, and they've all started setting up venture funds, investing in venture funds, setting up innovation departments. Um, and we're starting to hear from our portfolio and from, from companies we talk to that, uh, uh, you know, it, it is, it is getting to the point where those companies are now starting to think much more seriously about not just investing in startups, but buying startups and actually incorporating that technology, you know, into their platform. And so, you know, I picked 2018 not because I have some, some magic that says that's, that's going to be the year when it happens, but simply that from, if you start from the really naive heuristic that these companies are just slow moving, that we're getting to a spot where they should be comfortable enough with the innovation ecosystem and financial services to start buying. Fair enough. Let's talk about uh, just kind of what you're seeing out on the street, as it were. Uh, what kind of uh, investments are you guys are looking at? What you what you're seeing coming through the door? What kind of interests you? What piques your interest? What what you think is uh, maybe less intriguing to you? Uh, from a clock tower perspective? Sure. So um, we invest opportunistically, so we, we sort of look at everything that comes in the door. Um, you know, some firms uh, operate thematically where they'll say, you know, we have a point of view about what's happening in, um, you know, small business property and casualty insurance, and they'll want to go talk to every company that's doing that and then pick the best one. Um, we would rather sort of let the market come to us and, and let entrepreneurs who have great ideas knock on our door regardless of what it is. 
uh, and then you know have the flexibility um, you know to invest when we see something something great. So you know thematically, I think what what that tells us is you know somehow the the flow of what people are talking about from our perspective is perhaps representative of what's going on in the market. Um, you know, it can, so it's a little less driven of what we're interested in as much as what you know the market is kind of showing us in terms of opportunities. Um, I would say it is still the case that you know insurance technology is just white hot, and there's tremendous venture capital interest in it, um, and there's a tremendous interest from entrepreneurs and founders in starting insure tech businesses uh, to meet that sort of supply of capital. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting there is insurance is, is kind of a great example of an industry where for a very long period of time if you were a kind of mid-level rising star executive in the insurance industry, there wasn't anyone you could call if you had a brilliant idea for a startup. Like that was tough to raise money no matter how good you were. And so you never saw sort of seasoned insurance professionals running, like launching startups. Um, it's been a very positive change, I think, for the industry that there's now significant demand for InsureTech. And so you're seeing, I would say, an, an acceleration in founder quality uh, around insurance. And that continues to be something that's very, very attractive. And you're seeing you know, big valuations for companies with not a lot of traction um, and with all the consequences behind that. Obviously, in the past quarter, um, there's been a reawakening, I would characterize it, of interest from the venture community in all things cryptocurrency, blockchain, Bitcoin, um, you know, that's tied directly to the underlying price of, of coins. Um, you know, I think different people have, have different degrees of skepticism around this, but there is certainly something happening that has a tremendous amount of potential and carries the hallmarks of uh, the, the, the types of, of industries and, theme, and technology themes, rather, that can become really, really quite large in the sense that very, very good engineers are taking this stuff very seriously um, at, an increasing, at an increasing pace. And so you're seeing early adopters focused on, in particular, some of the distributed app infrastructure um, and, and on new ways to exploit the underlying idea of a blockchain and a distributed ledger. Um, it feels in, in some ways similar to what you might have seen in the beginning phases of, of you know, the Internet um, coming together in that sense that some of the, the best technical minds in the world are exploring fairly fundamental protocols uh, and infrastructure technologies on which you can envision a whole lot of very cool things one day being built. So that's, that is an area where I think the venture community lost interest for probably 18 to 24 months and has suddenly regained interest as um, you're just seeing incredible gains uh, for folks who've been investing in this stuff. Um, I, would I would think it would also, it's also going to turn a bit of a corner when some of the major banks finish uh, kind of unveil their uh, development that they're undertaking to bring out new, some new products. I mean, there's so much that's still inside the major banks that they haven't finished, and that'll give it another kick, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so, although you, know, you have to be a little careful here in the sense that um, the, the, there's probably a little more smoke than fire, I think, with the use of 
blockchain technologies inside these very large financial institutions. And there's, there's at least two ways in which you can tell that. So the first is, if you talk to the CEOs of some of these kinds of companies and you say, well, how many developers do you have you know, working for you? And it might be, well, I've got you know, 5,000 engineers or something like that, you know, software developers. And then you go, well, how many are actually working on something related to cryptocurrency? And the number is like 25, right? So um, <laughs> you have to be a little careful of how, how much of this is, is real. Uh, inside these institutions. And the second thing is you also have to sort of understand, I think, some of just the sheer career dynamics for somebody inside a bank, which is that it's probably not a bad career trade for you to be, you know, the go-to person on cryptocurrency inside a large bank because um, the worst thing that happens is it never goes anywhere and that's not really your fault, like if, if blockchain isn't, doesn't turn out to be something real. But if it does turn out to be something real and you were the first person in the bank who was paying attention to it and going and speaking at panels on it and able to garner some resources to start building some things, that's going to do wonders for your career if you're kind of a mid-level person. Um, and so I actually think there's a little more, there's probably too much interest inside these institutions relative to the actual development of this stuff. Um, as a result of some of these just basic human, human dynamics. Uh, where the whole thing is just a really inexpensive option for most financial services firms to pay attention to at this point. Um, uh, but having said that, you know, to me the thing that's, that's more intriguing is on, on the, the startup side where you see really, really good technical founders pursuing things in cryptocurrency. Um, and you saw some of that in what I would characterize as the first wave of, of crypto startups you know, 24 to 36 months ago. Um, but it was all a little bit weird and visionary then, and you really had dreamers. And today you're seeing, I think, um, slightly more practically minded talent focus on this, which is, which is interesting. Um, but, you know, while with something like cryptocurrency, it's a bit of, a, of an option of sorts for banks. Um, in other categories like wealth management um, or reg tech, which is, of course, another area that lots of people are, are spending time on now, you know, there's much more resources actually being deployed on these problems um, and, uh, and much more interest um, up and down the spectrum because it's just so much easier for a financial institution to see how this actually is accretive to their business. Like there's just direct cost takeouts um, or direct ways to improve you know, margin for these companies if they focus on those things. So we're certainly seeing a lot more interesting opportunities in those spaces. Um, uh, you know, the, the other area where I think we're starting to see um, a lot of interesting, a, a really significant increase in interesting technology is um, anything related, I'd say broadly speaking, to, to capital markets, but in particular to the practice of investing. And so our business straddles, our firm straddles, as I talked about earlier, both kind of fintech but also you know, the, the broader hedge fund industry, and we work with very large institutional investors. One of the things that we believe when we set out to launch our venture platform was that uh, over time there would be a convergence of traditional discretionary investment management techniques and increasingly systematic technology-driven and more quantitative ways of managing money. Um, the hedge fund business and the asset management business 
has seen that convergence happen at a much faster pace over the past 12 to 18 months than we thought would be the case. And um, you know, every day we have a conversation with another asset manager that's saying, hey, you know, what's, what are the technologies I should be looking at to future-proof my business? How can I change the way my investment analysts and portfolio managers are managing money? How can I incorporate you know, bigger, bigger data sets? How can I add machine learning techniques and tools to my investment process? Um, and we're seeing the startup community respond pretty significantly um, with, I think, the next generation of asset management technology as well as business models. And that's, that's really interesting to us. Are they willing to spend for it? I mean, are the meaning like is like the average price points for those kind of products higher than in maybe commercial banking? Yeah, so one of the one of the misperceptions that we often have to kind of educate startups about is is you know hedge funds turn out to be a really terrible customer base to go after. Um, they're actually pretty cheap. They don't really pay that much for technology. They will pay a lot of money for data um, and uh, you can build a nice business selling data to hedge funds. Um, they won't necessarily pay as much as you would like them to for technology. They will pay a lot for services that use technology. And that's another reason, by the way, why I think you'll see increased M&A where, you know, if you're State Street, um, you already are getting hedge funds to pay you for technology-enabled services. It makes a lot of sense for you to buy technology and then deliver that solution back to hedge fund. Whereas if you're just a technology vendor, it's much tougher to get you know, a bunch of hedge funds to buy that, um, especially at a price point that's interesting. But if you have data or if you have, whether it's actionable market-based data um, that, that directly links or even just exhaust data sets that a hedge fund can use, um, that you can, you can command a high premium for. Um, the, and you see that, right? Like, you know, Bloomberg is such a phenomenal business because it provides a data service to hedge funds. It's not really the technology tools that it uses or that, that, that hedge funds folks use. Uh, it's the underlying data that's of value. And so um, while we're seeing an awful lot of companies create technology that they want to sell into hedge funds, I think what those companies are, are more often than not finding is that they can build a good business, but they can't build necessarily a venture scale business um, where you have kind of the growth, the growth numbers that you want to see uh, because hedge funds have just such a long history of building this stuff in-house. And so you know, I think most of those are going to be pretty good sort of M&A takeout kind of businesses rather than IPO type of venture businesses. But, um, what, what perhaps more interesting is the innovation around business models where in a very, what I would characterize as peculiar development, we're actually seeing venture funds essentially provide working capital deficit, deficit funds to launch hedge funds and launch asset management businesses. There's a whole host of effectively asset managers that have gotten launched over the past 24 months that were basically venture-backed. And that, to my knowledge, is not something that's ever really happened before. Um, and this feels like potentially a pretty structural shift in the underlying business model of asset management, where instead of creating a technology or a data set that you would turn around and ultimately sell to incumbent asset managers, um, you would simply just build it and then manage assets yourself. 
um, because it turns out asset management is a pretty good business. Um, and uh, uh, venture firms have, have apparently demonstrated some degree of willingness to back these things. Now this could work out very badly, I think, for venture firms that have done it because um, the hit rate on successful asset managers from you know, inception to, to glory turns out to not really be that high in a way that generates the kind of economic scale that looks like a VC exit. Um, you know, we, we have a hedge fund seeding business and so we have some, some awareness of this. But it could also work out great because um, the, the, first, the first movers in these kinds of new business models, new ways of managing assets over long arc of history have generally done pretty well. Um, but it might take longer perhaps than the venture community uh, would otherwise expect to get to a scale where you have a really good profitable cash flowing business that you can get the exit that you want out of these things. Ben, that's all the time we have. Thanks. Always a lot of fun to talk to you. I appreciate it a lot. Okay. Thanks, JJ. Really uh, appreciate it. I want to thank uh, Ben Savage for joining us uh, today for this episode. Stay tuned to invunfiltered.com for more great podcasts. Uh, until next time, keep innovating and keep it unfiltered.